Okay, we're going to continue our study of John. Uh, specifically, we're going to uh, start to look at uh, chapter 3 and cover chapter 3. I'll be up here for a couple of weeks, uh, counting today, possibly three, Larry, <laughs> depending on how things go. Uh, but at least two. Uh, I'm going to try to make it two. I do have some uh, uh, kind of parallel sort of comments I want to make because as, a, as we've studied the book of John now for quite a few weeks uh, and I've studied and prepared, there's some things that uh, I just have sort of run across and I thought, well, I'd like to share that with you. Uh, so if you'll be tolerant of me, I'd like to do that. You know, everything we need to know about God is found in the Bible. Everything you need to know to be spiritually strong is found in the Bible. And so it would follow that reading and studying the Bible ought to be a part of your daily life. Um, as much as getting up and brushing your teeth in the morning. And so if that's the case, then, then how do we go about approaching that? Well, different things work for different people, and I can't stand here and say there's a wrong way to approach the study of the Bible. Uh, we do it according to our own ideas, I guess, and our own backgrounds. But this is the point. If you're reading and studying it daily, then, then that is absolutely great. That, that is what you need to be doing regardless of how you approach it. A couple of years ago, uh, we were attending uh, what was the Austinable Congregation, and on the first Sunday of the new year, I happened to be the one doing the announcements there. And we always tried to you know, make some comments, not just informational announcements, but other comments. And so I challenged everybody to read their Bible at least once that year. And, and just to use whatever method worked for them. Uh, you can go, you know, anywhere on the Internet or different places, and you can find lists of X number of verses and chapters per day for 365 days. Uh, you might choose to... to, to read one chapter a day or a certain number of chapters per day or a certain number of pages per day. For instance, my Bible back here uh, that I laid down has 1,424 pages in it. If I read 10 pages a day, I can read that Bible in 141 days. If I do 20 a day, it doesn't, and it doesn't take a lot of time to read 20 pages a day, I can read it in 71 days. I can read it six times a year. So take that kind of approach. And I just wanted to make those comments as we've kind of focused in on the Gospels. And uh, again, I just uh, I want to make a few extra comments here. I've inserted a few extra slides, so that's why I'm thinking three weeks. But we'll do the best we can. First four books of the New Testament are what we commonly refer to as the Gospels. Of course, we've heard that all our lives or as long as we've been affiliated with religion in some sort of fashion, whether we were raised in the church or not. And sometimes we refer to them individually. For instance, we'll say uh, Mark's gospel or the gospel according to Luke or so forth. And we take Matthew, Mark, and Luke and we kind of refer to them and group them together and call them the synoptic gospels. And I'll have a little bit more to say about that as we'll go along here. And, and we often think of them, of course, as, as being in harmony with each other. 
And then we drill in and we, we kind of compare the contents uh, one to the other. And what we realize is there's not four Gospels. There's only one Gospel. And this is the account of four different men of that one Gospel. In those Gospels, we read the testimony of some of those, those men who were eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses and, and who can, can verify the truthfulness uh, of what they're, what they're recording. The Gospels present to us the heart of the message. The heart of the message that all of us are to proclaim. That, that all of the teachings of the rest of the New Testament are based on. It's the heart. It is based upon the reality of, of what is presented to us in the Gospels. The Gospels are a real factual account of history. And our faith rests upon exactly what's recorded in those Gospels. And, and I want to suggest to you, you ought to have a sense of awe about that uh, for what's recorded in the Gospels. And you ought to recognize that Jesus Christ is the most important person in history, in the history of the world, the entire world. He is the pivotal person Around all, around which all of history pivots or is centered on. John three verse thirty six reads this: He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. Our eternal destiny, destiny is, is, is going to be determined by what we do with what we learn from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the center. It's the basis. One thing I want to note is that, that as we say that, the Gospels are not comprehensive. You know, they're the biography of, of the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. But they're not comprehensive. For instance... Uh, uh, take, for instance, his, his childhood. We know about one event out of his childhood when he was 12 years old and, and he was left in Jerusalem and he was found in, in the temple. That's really all we know about his childhood. Uh, we're not told certain characteristics uh, which, which he may have had. Uh, his sense of humor. I mean, this, you know, Jesus Christ was a man. He had to have had a sense of humor. Uh, motives, moods. I believe he got sick, just like you and I did, do. What about his appearance? Aren't you curious what he looked like? You know, we, you know, throughout history, man has attempted to portray Jesus physically. And, and how do you see him? You see him as this nice-looking, smooth-skinned, handsome man of a man. That's how they depict him. Well, do we know that? We don't really know that. Really, uh, what, we, what we little bit we know, 
about his appearance is actually in Isaiah, Isaiah 53, 2. For he shall come, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. So these pictures that have been drawn are probably 180 degrees. Had a beard. He was probably a common-looking person in all likelihood. Think about his, his, his work background. He was a carpenter. So I would expect his hands were pretty rough, and, you know, he worked outside, and, he, you know, he looked like that. I personally think he was just a very common-looking person who didn't stand out physically, you know. And that's how, that's how the Lord intended that to be. The Gospels convey information to us. Uh, hymns, speeches, dialogues, miracles, sermons, events, pronouncements, and, and, and so on. But I want to make a real important point. In the Gospels, there is no pretense of neutrality. As the world would like for you to adhere to today, that's all we hear is, is tolerate and conform. Well, the Gospels aren't, aren't that. Christianity is not that. The objective of the Gospels is to give us facts because that is where our... What, what, because, because there's an interest in what you believe. That's the intent behind the Gospels. It's what you believe. Uh, I don't know if you were here last Wednesday night in the auditorium class. David had a great lesson. Um, as he always does. And what he was discussing with specifically was how we deal with the sin of homosexuality. And, and he made a comment right toward the end of the lesson uh, about how those on the other side of that argument like to portray themselves. They like to turn the argument around to one of tolerance. Well, you're not tolerant, you know, as if that's a, that's a bad thing toward you. That they try to set the premise that you're a bad, awful, terrible person simply because you aren't tolerant. And, and you'll hear and, and you hear people say, um, "I go hit my button, didn't hit the wrong button." I'm not real good with the clicker, as y'all have figured out. That's what you'll hear people say, that, that we have to be tolerant. And if we don't, what, what happens? We get one of those names attached to us, one of those labels. And they say, you're a mean, evil person because of that. No. That's a premise that they set forth. You do not have to be tolerant. The Scriptures are not tolerant. And it's a, it's, a, it's a falsity, it's a lie that, that that is what the premise is, that's what the basis is. They don't set the premise, God does. Scripture is not neutral, neither should be us. And, and, and what are they doing? They're trying to direct the argument away from what the Scriptures teach, teaches to one of you being the bad person. 
for not tolerating their sin, which is homosexuality. Homosexuality is not the problem, in other words, is what they say. You are the problem for not being tolerant, for not being kind. Well, I'm sorry, I'm off on a little bit of a tangent. Let me, let me come back. So why do we have four Gospels? Well, the short answer is that's what God's will was, that we have these four Gospels. Um, some, some have tried to take those four Gospels and synthesize them together into one and, and, you know, there's a lot of books along that line that focus on the harmony of the Gospels. And there's perhaps nothing wrong with that. I'm not trying to suggest there is, but you can't really do that. You know, if we're not, you know, we're studying John. I know I'm off on a tangent, and I'll come back soon. But if we were to really back off maybe and talk about the four Gospels together, we, there's a lot to talk about in terms of the backgrounds of the writers, who the target audiences were, and so on and so forth. And, and, and what we said earlier, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are often referred to as the synoptics gospels, or synoptic gospel. Well, what does synoptic mean? What does optic mean? It means see, visual. And then the other part of it, uh, seeing is, means the same. See the same, synoptics. And they're called that because they're similar. They, they have these long sections that are essentially identical. But when we get to the book of John, uh, you, you, you read different numbers, and I can't put, I, I just have to take the numbers at face value. I can't, I haven't measured these numbers, but somewhere around 90% new material is, is found in John as compared to the other three. But there's key differences. And the key differences are, for, are one of the key differences is ge- geographical direction. Mark seems to, to focus on the work in Galilee. Luke, Jerusalem. But when we get to John, John's going back before, between Galilee and Jerusalem and Judea. We look at those four Gospels and we see different styles of teaching that Jesus would use from time to time. We see different content of what what he would teach. And they're written with an audience in mind. For instance, Mark, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew focuses on the Jews and he quotes a lot of the Old Testament and discusses Jesus' relationship to the law where John is is more abstract, more theological. Now, I saw this, this little chart here that I thought was interesting. And it didn't format very well out in uh, um, with my PowerPoint. PowerPoint didn't have those words cut in, in half there. I guess when, when it gets uh, put into the projection system, that's what happens to it. So I apologize for that. What I'm, what I'm putting forth here, though, is there's a primary audience. But when we look at that audience, every kind of person in the world is addressed. Every single person whatever their background is. Each, each gospel seems to have or to address different primary audiences. You know, Matthew and John seem to focus more on the Jewish folks, where Mark and Luke, the Gentile folks, and then believer versus unbeliever. And so there's unity in, in the gospels, there's diversity and different perspectives of what and who 
is Jesus Christ. And they all come together to form the picture of who Jesus really is. Matthew says he's the Jewish Messiah. He's the the king of Israel. He's the fulfillment of Old Testament hope. And, And Matthew's gospel is very structured. Mark portrays him as the suffering son of God. Who, who offers himself as a sacrifice for sins. And, and, and it's dramatic. It's, it has a dramatic tone to it. Luke portrays him as the Savior of all people, who, who delivers the downtrodden from oppressors. And it, it's very thematic. John portrays him as the divine Son who who came down from heaven to reveal to us the Father. And it's very theological in its content. But but when we back off and look at all four of them, they all four have these same things to them. Uh, they're, They're not completely exclusive to one another. This little table here came from a book called Four Portraits, One Jesus. And it was written by Mark Strauss. And, and it's kind of interesting. Uh, in, uh, it takes the synoptic Gospels, the first three, and compares them to John. And what we see is that, that um, as, I've, as I've already said, uh, the, the, the synoptic Gospels kind of focus on uh, the Galilean sort of setting and, uh, as the first part of the ministry of Jesus And then, whereas John looks at movement between Galilee and Judea, in the Synoptic Gospels, uh, there's little information about the length of Jesus' ministry. Uh, You could argue that it might even compress and fit into even a single year. You know, you could make that argument. But in John's Gospel, he mentions three different Passovers. And so what that means is that Jesus' ministry was somewhere between two and a half and three and a half years long based on John's gospel. In the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus kind of teaches in parables and short sayings and so forth. Uh, but when we get, get to John's gospel, there's long speeches and dialogues and dialogues with his opponents and, and interviews of people. In the Synoptic Gospels, there's, there's teaching that focuses on the kingdom of God. Uh, there's healings, there's exorcisms, and these demonstrate the power of the kingdom, the power of God. Where in John, the teaching focuses on Jesus Himself and the Son's revelation of the Father. And there's signs or miracles, but there's no exorcisms in this, in this book. So John is concerned with sort of dating Jesus' ministry. So let's turn our attention to John. Let, let me share some other thoughts uh, as well. And I know, I'm sorry, Paul, I know you did a great introduction, but as I said over the weeks, I just sort of kind of you know, developed this, so I wanted to share it. I'm not trying to suggest you didn't do a good job. You did a great job. This is just some additional information I've I've found and run across. (laughs) So I was talking about reading the Bible. 
And you may have thought when I said that, well, pick my Bible up, go to the first page, page 1, Genesis 1, 1, and there I go. And I wind up at the end of Revelation at some point in time. And that's fine. But what I want to suggest to you is maybe now, if you've done that, and I hope you have, um, that you focus on a sequence of books. Get that clicker again. I better put this thing down. Um, a sequence of books, and I think that would be very beneficial. The primary need of every Christian is to be assured of our salvation. We, we are Christians. Why? Because we have faith, and we believed, and we obeyed, and we want to go to heaven. Am I wrong? Does everybody in here want to go to heaven? That's why you're here, aren't you? Because you know that's part of what you have to do every, every first day of the week to go to heaven. We will not truly grow spiritually until we come to a place in our hearts where we know we are an eternal child of God. That, that, and we know that what Jesus did on the cross was to redeem us from our sins. And, and we know that we've been adopted into the eternal family of God. And it, it kind of goes against our human intuition and understanding. It's a truth, but it goes against that intuition. And, and the way we truly get this understanding is where? Through God's Word. Right here. That's where we get it. Through the Word of God. And so having said that, where do you start? Do you start at Genesis 1.1? I'm not going to say that's wrong. It's not wrong. But I want to suggest that a good place to start is 1 John. 1 John. And John stated the purpose of that book. John, 1 John chapter 5, and verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. I, I think because of the unique content of, of 1 John and given that you and I need need this assurance that we're talking about, we ought to take that book and we ought to read it and reread it and reread it often. A little short book. You can sit down and you can read it in just a few minutes. And I feel very strongly that if, if, if you're walking in the light, if you're walking in the light, your doubts of your salvation will fade away. They'll go away. You'll have that assurance. And I might add that, that while you're there, go ahead and read Second and Third John. Just another minute or two, a few minutes, and you've, you've read all three of those little books. But that's not what we're studying. We're studying the Gospel of John, aren't we? So what would you read next? The Gospel of John. I would suggest to you, if you're going to recommend to someone how to start reading the Bible, studying the Bible, start with First John, then go to John, which is where we're finally coming to. I'm sorry. Uh, 
Being assured of our salvation, like I've already said, is a great need that we all share. But, to a similar measure, increasing our faith throughout our life is vital to living an effective Christian life. It's vital. And I think the best book in the Bible for that purpose is the Gospel of John. And he doesn't leave any doubt. We've already referenced this, this scripture here several times. He doesn't leave any doubt as to why he wrote the book. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. A little bit of disagreement as to exactly when John was written. It was somewhere around 85 A.D. to as late as 100 A.D., depending on who you might pick up and read. But regardless, regardless of that fact, John wrote long after the other disciples, the other three, were dead. Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written some 20 to 25 years earlier. And they, they, yes, they give a detailed description of and a record of Jesus' life. But John, John had lived long enough to hear the teachings of the heretics who, who challenged the deity of Christ. And there were people then, even at that point, that were suggesting that, that Jesus was just merely a a great prophet or a teacher or an example, but they denied that he was the Son of God. John was hearing that. He had lived long enough to hear that. And I've wondered in, in God's uh, providence and, and great infinite wisdom if maybe that's why John lived that long, so that he could write John. And, and that's why John died a natural death, perhaps, in God's will. I don't know that, but... You know, I wondered that. John knew at that point he was the only remaining eyewitness to the supernatural life of Jesus. And and he wrote with the intention of documenting that and including these events and these teachings that, that leave no doubt to us what the true identity of Christ is. John nineteen thirty five, and he who has and he who has seen has testified. Who is the he? It's John. John spoke in third person. And his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. John's saying this, I saw it. I, I'm a witness, and I absolutely know it's true. He refers to himself, like I said, in third person. And how did, he, how, did he, how did he refer to himself? The disciple that Jesus loved. And, and, of course, Jesus loved every disciple. But did he not have a special love for John? We see that recorded in scriptures. Remember, John was, was what you would might call the, one of the inner three. Uh, uh, Jesus took him up on the, the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John, the inner three. Uh, when he got to the Garden of Gethsemane, um, on, on that fateful night, he, he separated 
them with him in the garden, those inner three. So, so when we get to the book of John, why would it not you know, be surprising to us that John would give us a, a different perspective or viewpoint that emphasizes Jesus' love for us and Jesus' love for the Father and the Father's love for Jesus? Why would he not do that? Why would we not expect that? The book gives, a, a, of course, a general outline of the life and the work of Jesus, but it's very different from the other three Gospels. Uh, there's five miracles in the other Gospels that are not recorded in John. There's two miracles only recorded in the Gospel of John. Um, and it, it, just, it just seems to me as I study and read the book of John that his intent there, one of his intents was to stress Jesus' relationship, personal relationship with individuals. I, I think he fully intended to show Jesus as a human, a man, the man Jesus, yet give proof that Christ is God and that he has these supernatural powers. And so so he gives a lot of attention to that, a lot of attention to proving that Jesus is the the Son of God, but but also showing that he was very much a human by, by showing us a variety of things. He was tired, he was sad. Um, hungry. He was a very loving man. Great book for us to be studying. So these are just some thoughts that I wanted to kind of share with you. Uh, I know I've taken up a good bit of time here this morning. Let's, uh, let's turn our attention to chapter 3. And um, I want to kind of go along. I, I, I appreciate uh, Brother Massalongo's lessons and his efforts and the slides are very good and I'm going to kind of go along I've inserted a few of my own so I guess you probably figured that out already Um, we look at the gospel according to John like I've already spoken of some of the sort of the statistics there are 11 discourses recorded in the book of John this is the first one this is where Jesus teaches Nicodemus. And of course, it, it, you know, familiar passage to, I would think, most of us in here. Uh, you've heard lessons associated with this passage, and so we're all familiar with what, what transpired. Jesus had gone to Jerusalem to keep the Passover. I mentioned that there's three Passovers recorded. This is one of them. So he'd gone to Jew- Jerusalem to keep the Passover, and he probably had with him... Andrew, John, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, and perhaps James. Um, And so the teachings of Jesus at this time is starting to attract a lot of attention. And of course, among those who gets their attention attracted is Nicodemus. Now, prior to this, this point in time here, Jesus had spent about two months in Galilee he, he, had, he had worked miracles, and these miracles, of course, proved his authority. Uh, they revealed his glory. And so now he's in Jerusalem for the Passover, and there was these multitudes in, in Jerusalem that were assembled for that religious purpose, for the, the Passover uh, celebration. And so what, what this is is an opportune time for Jesus to continue that, that teaching, to begin his teachings to the Jews. 
And so uh, we talked last week a little bit about the cleansing of the temple. Uh, he, he had cleansed the temple, and, and this had impressed his authority, uh, impressed, impressed the, the, the Jews with his authority, and, and kind of awakened uh, an interest in his work. And, and provided some of the essential and, and fundamental truths of the kingdom of God. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And, of course, we've talked about the Pharisees. That's a, the strictest sect of the Jews. Uh, they, they held the most correct opinions, and they were looking for the Messiah. Matthew 23, 3 tells us that. They were looking for the Messiah. But many of these Pharisees were, were hypocritical. However, some of them, like Nicodemus and, and Saul of Tarsus, were what you might argue the best and most faithful members to that sect. They, they believed, you know, what they believed and, and taught. And so um, you, you had to give them that. Nicodemus appears several times here. He, he, here we are in, in chapter 3. We're going to talk about this, this dialogue that Jesus has with, with Nicodemus. Later on, he appears in chapter 7, verse 50. And then up toward the end of John, 1939, he's involved with uh, taking the body of Jesus down from the cross and, and uh, uh, helping to bury it. And when we, we look at this from these references, we learn that he was a Pharisee, but he was also a member of the, of the Sanhedrin. And then, like I said, he later on pleads for a, a fair trial for Jesus by allowing Jesus to be heard and, and then helps with the preparing of Jesus' body for burial. John 3, verses 1 through 3, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so, here in, in verse 1, it tells us that Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. And, and so, he, he had some sort of chief office probably within that Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, of course, being a council, and, and it was kind of the main governing body of the Jews. It, and, and it was composed of the high priest and 70 other members, priests, scribes, and elders. Every Pharisee was a scribe, but not all scribes were Pharisees. Much has been written and stated as to why Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. Uh, we kind of have to speculate. Some stated that, well, he was busy during the day, and, and so this was a more convenient time for him to come by night. Uh, others kind of suggest that maybe Nicodemus was a timid man and a cautious man. And, and actually did not want to be seen with Jesus, so he came by night. 
But the final analysis is this. The Bible doesn't really state to us why he came by night. And, and so what we'll say is, is that's not really significant to us, is it, as to why he came by night. And he introduced him, himself to Jesus with the testimony, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that thou doest except God be with him. And I, I'm sidebar to that. You know, I've thought about, as I've studied the Bible over the years, um, have you ever thought about being there and seeing Jesus, seeing the miracles? And how could you doubt? How could you doubt? How, how could they, you know, how could they oppose him like they did, you know, if, you know? And so I, I kind of put Nicodemus over in that group. He has seen what Jesus has done. And, and he doesn't question the authenticity of those signs that Jesus performed. He believed that Jesus was a prophet and a teacher. That's what he thought. And that, that his miracles were a, a manifestation of the power of God. And, and there's no indication that Nicodemus really ever wavered from that belief that, that he expressed. He, he, what he is expressing, though, is limited faith in Jesus by coming to him and admitting what he does believe about him. And what he proves is, he, being Nicodemus, is that he's a man of fair dealings, and as we mentioned over in chapter 7, he defends Jesus, you know. Uh, and, and, and so he was a fair-minded man. And, and we will really truly never know if, if, if he had the courage to confess that faith. But the fact that he came with Joseph to ask for the body of Jesus, I think, is a testimony that he never wavered from his testimony that he gave in, in this first meeting with Jesus. We'll have a little bit more to add to that as we'll go on. We'll pick back up there next week. Thank you for your attention this morning, and uh, we'll stop there.